You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to the Women in Archaeology Podcast, Episode 5. I'm your host today, Sarah, with the panel today consisting of Chelsea Slotten, Kristen Bastis, and Kirsten Lopez. And today we're interviewing Alan Kaiser, author of Archaeology, Sexism, and Scandal the long-suppressed story of one woman's discoveries and the man who stole credit for them. Due out this September in paperback, we talked to Alan about how he discovered the subject of his book, Mary Ross Ellingson, and how he became aware of the scandal that surrounded her master dissertation and the efforts he went through to publish her story. Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast. I'm Kristen Bastis, and I'm here with Sarah, Chelsea, and Kirsten, and we are going to be discussing book by Alan Kaiser, Archaeology, Sexism, and Scandal, The Long-Suppressed Story of One Woman's Discoveries, and The Man Who Stole Credit for Them. The hardback was published in 2015 by Roman and Littlefield, and this summer is the release of the paperback version, and Alan will join us later in the podcast. So this book is actually a really interesting book. It has a fun title, obviously. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but the the really cool thing about this book is just the overall story of discovery. Part of the the book that really interested me the most, I mean, I, I knew most of this reading the book, but it was neat having it laid out so succinctly, is just the overall history of women in archaeology, especially during the, the 20s, going into the 40s, which he does yeah, a really good job of covering. Oh, he does a great job of covering it. And I think for those of us who are in the field, we probably have a pretty good idea that women were, in fact, involved with early archaeological expeditions. Right. But this book, as much as it's written for an audience that includes archaeologists, it's also written for a much broader audience who doesn't necessarily have any archaeological background. I mean, when I came into archaeology, I had no idea that there were early female archaeologists. It's not kind of the typical stereotype that you think about when you think about early archaeologists. So... I think it's really great that it could bring some recognition beyond just the recognition that women already get within this field. Oh, even as an undergrad a number of years ago, or not too long ago, I suppose, there wasn't a whole lot that I read about early women archaeologists. I mean, I didn't have or take a history of archaeology class or anything. Pretty much, by and large, most of the, you know, most of what we read is by male archaeologists. The basic sort of undercurrent, the, the foundation of what we know and how we practice archaeology today is predominantly male. There's a couple of females out there, but we don't hear, or at least I didn't hear about the likes of Gertrude Bell until much later yeah. after I graduated. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's well, somewhat well known, but I think that's more due to the internet, than to, um, at least for me, than the proper education that I did receive and paid for. So that's kind of a, another... I think you'd have to be a member of a very enlightened college to get any kind of background on women's place in archaeology. On my blog, part of the backbone of my blog has always been looking at female archaeologists from the past. And we can trace, I can trace women in archaeology as far back as 1775, I believe. So women have been in the field, and by in the field, I mean leading expeditions and surveys and digs as far back as the late 1700s, and then moving forward 
but I don't think I think the first female-ish archaeologist that I ever heard about was somebody mentioned Hyman Schliemann's wife whose name completely escapes me so that shows you how much it was imparted on me but they tried to pass her off as an archaeologist in one of my classes and I was like eh, no she didn't I mean she was as much of an archaeologist as any other male archaeologist's untrained wife was but she wasn't trained she didn't go to the schools and then you look back in the history of itself and there's I think there's like 50 or somewhere between 50 and 70 names that I have on the blog in the list chronologically leading up to uh, the early 1900s. So that's just the, you know, the hundred year span between the end of the 1700s and the beginning of the 1800s. And you never hear about any of those women except maybe Gertrude Bell. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of those women were also in some way related to other archaeologists or to male archaeologists, their daughters or their no, wives. No. Or, and a good um, number of them were not actually. Okay. Well, the ones that I was taught about in school, there you are. um, sometimes around, it was interesting because they were often talked about as so-and-so's daughter who also happened to be an archaeologist, you know, or so-and-so's wife who got interested in archaeology because her husband was, or, you know, that sort of commentary. Right. No, that's very true. You usually don't hear about women in archaeology unless they are attached to a male figure, if you hear about them at all. And that doesn't change getting closer to our, I would say people in school today are not being taught about female archaeologists. And the contributions of women in archaeology are as significant as our male counterparts. It's just, we don't get credit for it. And as this book illustrates, sometimes the credit that we, or the work that women put into it gets taken by men and blatantly plagiarized. Yeah, I just, when I was reading this book, it was so astounding because plagiarism is such a huge deal. You know, every undergrad class I ever took had half a page, if not more, on the syllabus about plagiarism and, you know, how it was inappropriate and why it was inappropriate. And it just boggles my mind that this happens. Yeah, and from a professor, I mean... It is weird that it would be an actual professor that did it. It's just, I don't know. I was kind of taken aback by that. Like, I, if you had said it was one of her fellow students who tried to pass it off as his stuff, I could totally see that. But this was the guy who was supposed to be guiding her through her education. Yeah. So just for a little background, because I know not everyone who will be listening to this will have read the book. The The basic premise, which you can pretty much get from... The, the back of the book is that Mary Ross Ellingson participated in an excavation at Olympus, uh, Greece in 1931. And her at the time supervisor, whose last name was Robinson, I believe his first name was David, passed off her master's thesis and parts of her PhD dissertation as his own work in the published um, excavation reports and analysis of the excavation over the next 20-some years. Right, and the author who, as we said, we'll be talking to later on, Alan Kaiser, he did a really great job of early in the book. I would say the, he has this book broken up into three parts, and the first two parts are basically just the history of the field of archaeology when uh, Ellenberg would have been in the field. Uh, looking specifically at her field school at Olympus, because apparently she kept really great notes and wrote really fascinating letters that allowed him to piece together that there was, you know, there was an issue here, there was a mystery, and he was able to follow that using her notes and then further 
uh, investigation into the to the uh, scandal. Yeah, and I think a big part of the story too really kind of delves into the world of women at the time. So as feminists, we do and can get quite offended at what happened. But considering the context, not to take anything away from what happened, he knew what was happening in a, a sort of way. It's like he let her know. It wasn't that he kept it a secret from her. And that was sort of what was really most just, I was a bit aghast at that. Um, <laughs> and it's kind of plays into it. There's a lot about uh, how women may or may not have expected continue her profession um, or into her she tried and worked towards her completing her dissertation it took longer than she had originally planned and there's a number of discussions on what uh, Kaiser describes as alternative career paths for women which in many ways stands true today so some of the decisions that women make that are very influential now, or even more so then, uh, decisions such as getting married or having children, in some cases could get a female professor fired or just disallowed from being hired at the same university as her husband. So there were some, some really fascinating doors into what it was like. It's very different, but at the same time, there's a lot that hasn't changed. I'm I'm glad you brought up that she both knew that this was happening and that it took a while for her to complete her PhD. And one of the things that I wondered reading this, because we do know from correspondence between Mary and Robinson that David Robinson made Mary Ellingson aware of the fact that he had published her master's thesis, I believe it was, in, in Olympus um, 7. And but that, that correspondence was from 1952. And that publication was done several years, I believe it was almost a decade earlier. And I wonder whether his very quick co-option of her master's thesis into this book without giving her credit may have played some part of her delayed PhD, which isn't really addressed in the book. And I will actually probably ask Alba about that later. That's an interesting idea. I do like how like Robinson was kind of smarmy about it when he sent her the letter telling her that he, cause he sent her a copy of the book and he was like, Oh yeah, I had to change a bunch of stuff. And 90, 95% of it right. was unaltered from her dissertation. Exactly. And most of what was altered was, I'm going to make this a semicolon and a lowercase letter rather than a period and an uppercase letter. I mean, that's yeah, editorial. Yeah, that's not enough to that's not enough to change it. I thought that was funny. I can I can't imagine being her and receiving that from my advisor along with the letter. And I mean, what what could you possibly be feeling at that point? You know, here's here's my hard work, my master's thesis. And this dude is just blatantly publishing it as his own work and then claiming that the reason why he's not giving me credit for it is because he had to change a bunch of stuff that he didn't actually change. Well, and, and Al said that he went, I guess, talked to her daughter, who said that while her mother had mentioned what had happened, she didn't necessarily seem overly upset. And, you know, she was certainly given the opportunity in her, in her lifetime. She was interviewed about David Robinson. 
and what she thought about him. And Al says that the, the journalist who was interviewing her was looking for some kind of dirt or something to, to write up, you know, a sensational story. She was certainly given opportunity to, to let people know what had happened and, and why she made the choice to protect his reputation is interesting. Uh, there's a little bit, I want to say, at the end of her career section, where it talks about how her work that she did at the museum in Canada, when she went back home and worked there for a number of years, the her bosses, basically, her supervisor sent her a letter or gave her a card and thank you that basically said that we appreciate that you never asked for any recognition and that you took this did this work graciously free of charge and was very it's it's that humility and that meekness that was so much a part and so much ingrained in the identity of being a woman that to be the best woman that she could that was part of what was in some ways expected it was looked upon as proper and something to be proud of is to not speak up and it does remind me of an article uh, that was posted on our Facebook page somewhat recently about a British woman who is I believe forensic anthropologist yes. and she won or not one <laughs> she was granted damehood and she was embarrassed but honored to receive that. And I think it's a very similar idea in that there isn't a seeking of recognition and there isn't, it's just doing the behind the scenes work and being happy with that is sort of the expectation. And that is looked well upon. And there are people who have that sort of personality, but I think by and large, that was just what was expected. And if you were a woman and say you spoke out about something like this, you would be seen as you know, all sorts of negative. Right. Uppity. <laughs> Completely right. She probably, the reason why she didn't get more vocal about it was because it would not have helped her in any way. It would only have hurt her. Um, yeah. And it's another one of those situations. It's her word against his, even though her master's thesis was published, what, a year before he published this book? So it's women are socialized to not be troublesome and this would have been a whole lot of trouble had she chosen to fight it sure well and you see that even in the the discussion of how she and the other two women who were on this dig in 1931 dressed and mary allingson and one of the other women were very careful to wear dresses or, or skirts and be very feminine to present a non-threatening picture to the men on the dig Whereas the other woman, whose name I believe was Sarah Freeman, wore men's clothing to try and prove that she could do the job just as well as the men could. And they're two very, very different approaches to trying to be able to do what these women wanted to do in their field of interest, despite the status quo not necessarily being success. I think it's e interesting how the discussion is that they were trying the two women were trying not to be threatening to the men because I mean sarcastically I can say god forbid the men feel threatened but for real if the men feel felt threatened that could have been pretty detrimental to them career wise um because you know the, the other 
the other woman, Sarah, did she get a lot further academically than the other two? She did. She also never got married. Exactly. That's my point. The only way she could have managed that was to not get married. And that's a common thread among a lot of early female archaeologists. They got where they were by not getting married. I know they were confirmed bachelorettes and, and blue stockings and as this woman was, she was just like, I got things to do. Earlier archaeologists, in the, even in the late 1800s, their husbands um, passed away, leaving them widows with uh, some money. They were then free to live the way they wanted to and pursue their interests because they had the means and the freedom. And as a widow, they weren't expected to get married again. Right. Well, and there was that one lovely story from, I'm not even sure it was an archaeology department, but two individuals who worked at the same university who courted for decades and finally got married after the man retired. And they jokingly referred to it as the longest courtship in history because they knew if they got married, she would get fired. Yeah. Well, and you see it today, even. Um, A lot of professional women, a lot of women, not just in archaeology, but in, in general, women who go to college tend to delay getting married. They tend to delay starting families. And depending on the field, depends on how long they delay these things. And to us, it's natural, but why are we delaying it, you know? What, well, that what, they, that you do what I did and do that first, get it out of the way, and then go on to your career. You know, yeah, I mean, if you want to have kids, go for it. Some of us just don't want to, and that's our personal yeah, yeah, you know? But, and then there's... um. There's some women who, like, plan these things, like clockwork. They're like, I'm going to do my bachelor's, and then I'm going to do my undergrad, and then I'm going to do my PhD, and then I'm going to get married, and then I'm going to have kids, and then I'm going to get a job, and, then, and you know, and it works for them. But my point is, is even today, women have to figure out what they want to do first, or what they want to concentrate on the most, and that's the thing that they, they get to do. They can't do both. Not like men. Men, can't, men can do both. Women don't have that option. Why should we have to choose? Well, why should we have to choose? Because statistically, we're the ones that get stuck doing all the work. So you you have to decide. Can you take care of a newborn baby and write a master's thesis and a PhD and do research? You know, babies are a lot of, that's a lot of responsibility. And I'm not like, I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying the reality of the situation is even today, women are disproportionately responsible for childcare and house care. So after we've been at school all day and we've done all of our research and we've gone to whatever job we have, we're still expected to come home, provide some kind of a meal, take care of our children and clean our house. I am simply saying that I would like it if that was not the status quo. Oh, yes. No, I think all (laughs) of us would like it if that was not the status quo. (laughs) Unfortunately, I would like that to change very much. But let's go to break. And when we come back, we will have our interview with Alan Kaiser. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs. Did aliens build Stonehenge? Did the Easter Island statues walk? 
Did the Vikings colonize Midwest America? What does mainstream archaeology have to say about all of this? Listen to the Archaeological Fantasies podcast and learn about popular archaeological mysteries, hoax or fact. Learn to tell the difference with Dr. Kenneth Fader and co-host Sarah of the Archie Fantasies blog. Check out the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archie Fantasies and get ready to think critically. Let's get back to the show. Funny beady blokes you will see are a staple of archaeology. Hey everybody and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. We have been discussing Alan Kaiser's book, Archaeology, Sexism, and Scandal, the long-suppressed story of one woman's discoveries and the man who stole credit for them, which is about Mary Ross Ellingson. And we are fortunate to actually have Al come join us for the, the second and third portion of our conversation today. So, Al, thank you so much. Do you want to do a quick little introduction? Sure. Uh, and I want to thank you for having me. I appreciate the interest in the book and in Mary Ross Ellingson as well. Uh, I am fascinating a lady. <laughs> yes, she is. I am a professor of archaeology at the University of Evansville. I'm also chair of the Department of Archaeology and Art History here. I am a classical archaeologist. I have done field work in several parts of Spain, in Greece, Israel, in Italy. I'm sure you have heard of Pompeii and perhaps Ostia in England. I don't um, know what this Pompeii is. I... Now you never heard of that. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever heard of Pompeii. <laughs> I've also done uh, work in the United States, and I spent a fabulous summer working on the Caribbean island of Nevis, looking for an 18th century synagogue, which we never found, but I still had a great time. <laughs> I was going to ask if you found it. <laughs> it's like the natural question, did you find it? No, but actually, uh, in the next season, the person who was in charge of the project, she did find its location. Excellent. So it was so awesome. there one year too early. <laughs> well, Alan, you have a wonderfully put together book here. I enjoyed reading it. And don't take this the wrong way. It was a very quick read. And that was because I was so into it. I really like the way you wrote it. I like your writing style is very easy. And it's I like when I have a book on archaeology that I could hand to like my mother, and I know she could read it and understand what's going on. I appreciate that as someone who deals trying to educate people who are non-professionals about archaeology. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I find it interesting you bring that up because I very much wanted to capture a like conversational style because this, this whole story unfolded as I was making discoveries. I kept finding myself telling people stories in the hallway or out at coffee with friends or talking to my family on the phone. I was always telling stories. And so I wanted to capture that storytelling uh, element in the whole style of the book. I, I think I feel like you succeeded. I really do. Well, thank you. Yes, I, I would definitely agree with that. Uh, I found it very well laid out with all the pieces that you had to put together it's laid out logically, and it is in a very conversational and easy-to-read style. And from the first part of the introduction, you captured me when you talked about how archaeologists get that question about what most of mind is. It's our most favorite question in the world. <laughs> Y'all hate to answer that question. Do you want to talk a little bit about why you think this is the most important thing you've ever found? Sure, yeah. The reason I think it's the most important thing I've ever found is because it sort of unmasks a, a whole issue, something that other people had known about and had covered up, this issue of plagiarism. I did, in my research, come to realize that other people knew something about this and something about this case, but nobody was willing to talk about it beyond, you know, informal conversations. Nobody wanted to put it into print. And I feel, especially nowadays, it's very important for us to 
get that story out there, unmask it, and let people understand the full history of women in archaeology, which by covering this up, I think it hides, creates this false narrative, this false mythology about our own past. I know that we have a lot of time with this, but I want you to tell us how exactly you first discovered Mary Ellington, because I love the way you wrote about that in the book. Yeah, so here at the University of Evansville, um, just outside of my office, there was a storage shelf. We've since moved it, but uh, <laughs> at the time, in 2003, there was this storage shelf. And I'd been here for two years at that point, walking past this shelf every day to get to my office, not two feet from it. And I had never noticed that there was stuff there, anything interesting. Until one day I was uh, grading papers. It was November of 2003. And I don't know if you've graded papers, but there's <laughs> a point where you just can't take it anymore, especially when somebody is really bad, when their name pops up on the next paper. And so I had to take a break. And so suddenly any doing anything else sounded much more interesting than grading papers. And so I went out to this shelf, which was just a mess. It had just random stuff on it. And I thought, why don't I reorganize the shelf? That sounds like a lot more fun. Um, <laughs> And that's when I uh, then came across this photo album. And as soon as I opened up the photo album, the first, I just opened up to any random page, but the first page I looked at, the first photo I looked at, I recognized immediately was from the site of Olynthus, which is an extremely important excavation from the 1920s and 30s conducted by David Robinson. This may sound a little crazy, but it's the first place that anybody studying ancient Greeks bothered to excavate a house, to look at houses. Prior to that, they'd only looked at public architecture, theaters and, uh, you know, things like that, temples, and nobody dug up a house. This has become one of the seminal investigations at Olynthus, the first person to look at houses. He published 14 volumes about what he found there. And it is still the place that anybody who's going to study the Greek house, that's where they start. They read those 14 volumes. Even I, as a graduate student, I had to read all 14 volumes um, as a class assignment. They are that important and that seminal. And so I open up this photo album and I see a picture of Olynthus and I recognized the site immediately, but it wasn't a picture I had ever seen before. And that's when I got very interested and realized that these pictures have been taken by Mary Ross Ellingson, who was working on that excavation in 1931, uh, and that nobody else had ever seen these. Nobody was aware that these existed. And then tucked into the photo album were all these letters and news clippings. They were letters that Mary had sent home to her family. And they were just filled with marvelous details about the excavation, about Robinson, about what they were trying to do. There's an important shift that happens during that season in 1931. He'd excavated a season before in 1928, and he still hoped to find temples and, and theaters. But every time he opened a trench, he found a house. And it occurs to him in 1931, hey, maybe I should be focusing on this. Maybe this isn't so horrible. Uh, maybe I can learn something. Um, and you start to see that shift in his methodology and his thinking through her letters. She talks about what was going on and how they were doing it. So I realized this is a really important find for the history of archaeology. Yeah, so that's how I found it. Well, Robinson's a really interesting character, especially the way that you lay him out here, because he's at the same time a very progressive professor, a professional at this time, towards his female students, and then becomes a very regressive figure at the same time <laughs> towards one of them, a couple of them actually in particular. That is absolutely true. <laughs> and it's just like, the, it's kind of, when you first started mentioning him, because as you read the book, you don't give the secret away until the middle of the book. So you, you paint a very rosy picture of Professor Robertson, and then you hit us with it. <laughs> so tell us about, tell us about the eight little words. 
Yeah, so I had found this these letters and uh, photos, and I knew I had something here. I knew I could turn this into an article or something, and it's just also interesting. And I actually fell in love with her as well. She had died in 1993. She lived here in Evansville, and her daughter had donated the photo album and the letters to the department. And at that time, somebody just put this on a shelf, and everybody had forgotten about it. And so I went to find out more about her, and I went to the university archives, and the archivist pulled her personnel file. It turns out she had been a professor at the University of Evansville. And so I started reading through her personnel file, and there was a form that she had to fill out in 1973. She retired in 1974, but in 1973, she fills out this form, uh, and it's just your standard personnel form. So your name, birth date, like all this standard stuff. But one of the questions was publications, and she lists Olynthus Volume 7 and the first chapter of Olynthus Volume 14. Now, as I said, as a graduate student, I read all 14 volumes, and I did not recognize her name. I knew they were not on these books. And so uh, I got very intrigued by that. She was claiming to have written something that nobody else thought she had written. And so I didn't know if she was making something up, if she was exaggerating. I got very curious uh, and so pursued that lead. What I found out was uh, I got a, a copy of her dissertation and her master's thesis, and then I got a copy of volume seven of Excavations at Olynthus and volume 14. And I discovered she had indeed written these. However, Robinson had taken her name off and put his own name on. Volume 7 is, I think, the most shocking. It's almost word for word her master's thesis. He changed a few things, just edited a few things. But basically what he did was he took her master's thesis, took off her name, put his name on it, did a little editing and sent it off to the publisher. And nobody knew this. This was I was the first person to discover this. He did the same thing with her dissertation. He did reduce it down a lot. He edited more out of her dissertation. But he kept some of the key idea, ideas, and there were some really interesting ideas, and published those as the first chapter and a half of Excavations at Olynthus 14. Now, so, one of the things that I found most interesting, or I don't know about most interesting, there are so many interesting things that happened in this book. But one that was very interesting was that, I guess, Mary kept a copy of a correspondence with him where he sends her a copy of a book that he's plagiarized. <laughs> And that seems a very bold move. And I don't know. And that was also several years, if not maybe a, a decade or close to after the, the book was published and whether he had a guilty conscience or, you know, what was going on? Yeah, actually, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, I got so obsessed with this whole story. I researched it for years and I wanted to find out more than I could find out here at the University of Evansville. So I went down to Oxford, Mississippi. He, uh, Robinson, was a professor for most of his career at Johns Hopkins, but he ended it at the University of Mississippi. And when he died, he left all of his papers there. So I went down there and went through his correspondence, went through all these papers in the archives. My wife and I went, Christine, we really had a good time. If you've ever done archival research, it's a lot of fun. But we were going through all these boxes of correspondence, and we found a whole bunch that he had kept from Mary that she had sent to him. And one of them, and then he kept copies of the letters he had sent to her. And in one of those letters, he sent her, this was in 1952, when he published the last volume of Excavations at Olynthus, number 14. Uh, he sent her a copy and he included, well, I don't know what he included. That letter was not included with his correspondence. Uh, but when she received it, she sends a letter back to him saying something like, I was very surprised to see my dissertation in print. She was always polite. <laughs> And then he responds to her like a week later, and he says, uh, yeah, I guess I should have given you more credit. <laughs> Which, uh, for very, yeah, right. 
Well, he was a very proud man, a very arrogant man, and I don't think apologies came very easily to him. What he then sends to her in December, and this is the one piece of paper she did keep, was a Christmas card that had this painting that he had had done, uh, well, not he, the University of Mississippi had had done of him. He was such an illustrious and respected professor at this point, they wanted a portrait of him to hang at the university. And in that portrait, he was surrounded by symbols of his accomplishments, most of which related to Olynthus. And in his lab is volume seven of Excavations at Olynthus. You can recognize it by the frontispiece. There's no question about that. So it's the one volume he didn't publish. That's the one he is now immortalized with. That painting still hangs in the galleries at the University of Mississippi. And so what he did is he had reproduction of that photograph put onto a Christmas card and he mailed it to her. And that's the one piece of paper she kept. She didn't keep the volume. She didn't keep any other correspondence from him. She just kept that one Christmas card. I don't know how to explain that. Uh, <laughs> I do know that as she aged, she uh, moved twice and had to downsize each time. So she had to throw out a lot of stuff. I understand that, but that was the one thing she kept. I was wondering if you had any idea um, about why you got so much pushback from the editors when you were originally going to write this as an article and you got rejections and people were, were unwilling to really have any part in getting this story out there. Yeah, this is the most rejected article I've ever written. <laughs> so I tried to turn it into a scholarly article, and it was rejected by 11 different editors um, and more than two dozen peer reviewers, which was really heartbreaking. It was really hard to deal with, but I felt it was so important. That's why I kept pushing on. What was, I think the reasons for the resistance, there are a couple. The stated reasons that appear in the, the letters, the rejection letters, were always really kind of vague. Sometimes editors said things like, well, we don't think our readers would find this interesting, which I don't see how that can be, but they had reasons like that, just kind of vague statements. But I think there was something else going on, two different things. One, I think, especially in classical archaeology, I think it's a little different perhaps in anthropological archaeology, and you can tell me whether this is true or not, but my impression is in classical archaeology, there's a great deal of kind of uh, intellectual elitism and sexism. And so the fact that Mary Ellingson did not go on to become a famous professor, to run excavations, to write a bunch of books, they kind of dismissed her. It just doesn't matter. She doesn't matter. In fact, some of the editors even said that. That's why they rejected it, because it just doesn't matter. So I think that's one thing that's going on. Because it was her, it didn't matter. Right. Oh. I've always wondered if, it, if the situation had been reversed, if she had plagiarized Robinson, would they all then be in up in arms about that? Would they be willing to publish that story? <laughs> we'll never know the answer to that, but uh, But we can speculate. <laughs> <laughs> that well, won't stop us. <laughs> <laughs> and I think based on your description of Robinson and his personality, had she plagiarized something of his, I think he probably would have made a pretty big stink about it <laughs> at the time that it was plagiarized. I think you were absolutely right. <laughs> the other thing that I think was going on here in the rejections is something that makes, I think, American Greek archaeology unique and different from everybody, other, every other type of archaeology that is out there. All of it is run through the uh, American School of Classical Studies in Athens. If you want to work on an excavation, you have to go through them. If you want a permit, uh, this is mandated by Greek law they have to recommend you for an excavation permit. So if they don't like you, you don't get the permit. Also, if you want to work in Greek archaeology, if you're an American, you want to work in Greek archaeology, you have to go spend a semester or preferably a year or even longer at the school in Athens. That's just kind of expected, where you then, I think, get indoctrinated in a way. 
And so what happens is you wind up with, I think, a very closed group who are not open to new ideas. I quote uh, Steve Dyson, a uh, classical archaeologist in the book. Uh, let me just read you that. He talks about this whole system then where you have to go through the American school, you take the classes there, and then if you're going to work on an excavation, your first has to be at Corinth or at the Athenian Agora. That's where you start. And so it's also carefully controlled. And he says of that, time spent at the American excavations at Corinth is more likely to encourage the development of an archaeological Confucius devoted to the word of the ancestors rather than a classical Lewis Binford willing to challenge received tradition. So I think there's this strong strain of conservatism, especially in Greek archaeology, and they don't like to challenge the ancestors. They don't like to make them look bad, even if people didn't like those people at the time. Now that they're dead, now that they moved on, they're revered ancestors, and you don't question them. You don't. That doesn't seem like a really good way to get answers from the field of archaeology, <laughs> right? It seems very, I, I hate to use the regressive word, but that's exactly what it seems like. I, I would agree with that, right. Uh, I don't think it's an ideal way to do things. It becomes so insular. Yeah. We're going to oh. go to break real quick, and when we come back, we're going to continue with our interview with Alan Kaiser. The Archaeotech Podcast, hosted by Chris Webby Webster and Chris Boone Sims, is a show dedicated to the technology of the modern archaeologist. On the Archaeotech Podcast, we interview people using interesting tech, and we dig into the issues, advantages, and try to uncover the disadvantages of the digital age and going paperless. We all know there is no paper in the future, or should we say, paper has no future. Check out the show at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeotech. Let's get back to the show. And we are back, and we are still talking with Alan Kaiser, who wrote a very wonderful book, Archaeology, Sexism, and Scandal. And Alan, could you tell us more about Mary Ellingson's world at this time? What, what was the field of archaeology like while she was wrapping up her field school and preparing to go into the professional world? Yeah, right. It was a changing world, uh, and a rapidly changing world at that. I always envisioned, if you could somehow quantify the steps women have made in academia and well, just in the world in general, in terms of having more rights, more freedoms, more opportunities, if you sort of like could make a chart or a graph or something that started in, say, the 1890s and went up to the present, there'd just sort of be like this line that was slowly going up, right? Or at least that's what I always thought, if something like that were possible. And what I discovered is that's not at all what went on. It's a lot more complicated. And I was actually able to do a graph kind of like that by looking at the percentage of undergraduates in the United States between the 1890s and 1980s, also looking at the number of female faculty and the percentage of female faculty and percentage of women in graduate programs. And what is really striking about the numbers that I found from the U.S. Department of Education is that instead of a straight line, what you have is this line that goes up until the 1920s, and then those percentages start to drop through the 30s, especially the 40s, and then bottom out in the 1950s. When Mary Ellingson and her friends uh, were undergraduates, they were really at reaching the crest of this time when women were getting more and more opportunities to be in college, to be in academia. And she very much 
saw what was happening around her and wanted to become a classical archaeologist and a professor. She was very clear about that. But then what happened is the world changed under her uh, or all around her. The depression started, so there were fewer jobs. That was one problem. And so it was seen that men were the breadwinners and women, you know, they weren't supporting families. And so institutions were more likely to hire men than women. That was one problem. There were also was the problem of the tenure system, which we kind of think it's always been around, don't we? It just started <laughs> in the 1920s. And part of the tenure system requires that you do publications. But there's also the issue of sexism. So women were seen as not so capable of performing research as men. So women were given heavier teaching loads in academia than the men were. So they had less time for research. And so they had fewer publications, which then just proved to everybody that women couldn't publish and therefore needed to teach more and leave it to the men. It's this circular reasoning. Can you, and so, can you talk a little about a phenomenon that you mentioned in the book during this, this phase here, the, um, the Madame Curie effect? Yeah, that's uh, something I didn't coin, somebody else who coined that term. But the idea is that Madame Curie, who did so much, uh, she made discoveries, she taught at the university, she went on the lecture circuit, she did so many incredible things. Well, if she could do everything, then any woman should be able to do it. And if a woman couldn't reach the level of Madame Curie in whatever her field of endeavor was, then she just didn't deserve tenure. She didn't deserve to teach. And it is interesting to see, I quote some some women who were writing at the time who were urging their fellow female scholars to become Madame Curie, to reach that that goal. They had really bought into that. And of course, that's not possible, at least not for us mere mortals. <laughs> it's just so difficult. And so few women actually did that. I think few men did reach that level of well, achievement. I was going to ask, were the men held to the same standards? No, absolutely not. And one of the, the really interesting things about this particular story, and you mentioned it kind of at the end, is that Robinson, because in part because of how prolifically he published, I think there were 15 volumes for the Olympus, Olympus excavation series that were just thousands of pages of writing. And he had kind of become this myth more than a man. And knowing that he plagiarized from his students certainly helps to, to bring him back down to earth a little bit. And that he certainly also wasn't achieving Marie Curie status. Actually, that's very interesting. That's an interesting point to bring up following the Marie Curie effect idea. You're absolutely right. He looked like he was doing it and he wasn't. And I think there have been people in Greek archaeology in particular who have striven to be like him to try and do what he could do, but it's not possible. It's not humanly possible, as people have discovered. Yeah, that's a very good point. When it wasn't just Mary that he was plagiarizing from, was it? I believe that was the most egregious case, but uh, yes, absolutely. wasn't a one-off. Uh, Right. I got very curious when I uh, submitted this article. The very first time I submitted it, when it was rejected, it was rejected because the blind reviewers said that there were rumors about Robinson and plagiarism. And nobody had ever heard of Mary Ellingson, but they gave me a list of all these other people they said he had plagiarized. So what I did is I actually got a hold of all their master's theses and dissertations and compared them to everything that Robinson ever wrote. Uh, it was a huge undertaking, but I did do that. And I did uncover then some people whom he really did plagiarize, no question about that. And what was interesting is it's not just women. Ellingson married and 
temporarily left the field, which is why I think he thought she was fair game, but he plagiarized other people. Um, I think the most surprising to me was a guy named George Hoffman, who is a very famous archaeologist. And even at that time, he'd gotten a PhD in Germany. He was a German Jew, and he came to the United States to escape the Nazis in the 30s. And the only way he got here is because Robinson managed to get him over here. He managed to get him a visa so that he could come in and teach at Johns Hopkins. But he had to be a student. And so what Hoffman did is he did another PhD at Johns Hopkins because that's the kind of man Hoffman was. He could do that. But that got him over here and away from the Nazis. And Robinson plagiarized that dissertation as well. So he was an equal opportunity uh, plagiarizer. He even published that material after Hoffman he was here for a year uh, at Johns Hopkins, and then he got a job at Harvard, where he spent the rest of his career. So he was a very well-respected professor at Harvard, and Robinson still published his parts of his dissertation without giving him credit. I don't know how to explain that kind of arrogance. Uh, Kristen had a really good thought about why Robinson plagiarized so much of his students' material, especially in the Olympus volumes. Kristen, can you, do you want to ask him that question? Yeah, I was, I was kind of wondering about Robinson's actual interest in the domestic. From the material that was presented in the book, it seemed like he was moving, moving a lot of earth. And I just sort of felt like he was looking for those public spaces still. And when they didn't materialize, he just was sort of like, well, I have to publish something. So I guess I'm going to do this. And wasn't particularly interested in the domestic and therefore felt a little freer to co-opt other people's work. Do you have a, a better sense of, or can you explain um, his, his, why you think he was really interested in the domestic? I think you are absolutely right. And that's an interesting connection that I hadn't quite made to justify to himself what he was doing. I think you're dead on right. He did not want to find houses. He really really did not want to find houses. He wanted to find temples and statues and theaters. And I don't think he ever understood his own accomplishments. I don't think he ever understood what it is he actually was able to do in opening up this whole new field of domestic archaeology. Um, I found a letter in his archives at the University of Mississippi from 1947. So World War II had just ended he wanted to go back and reopen excavations, and he actually went to Greece, but Greece was too unsettled then. There was a civil war going on, and so it wasn't going to happen. And that's when he gave up. And so in this letter, he writes to uh, J. Walter Graham how disappointed he is. He's decided to give up. He's not going back. He said, I so wanted to find those temples and those theaters. I'm so disappointed I never did. And this was after he had published most of the volumes and the praise had come in. He was famous. He was getting accolades for this. And he just doesn't seem to get it. He just doesn't seem to understand it. He just seems like he got the booby prize. I want to jump back real quick when we were previously talking about the the timeline for Robinson's plagiarism of Ellingson. And I think for Olympus 14, that wasn't published until 1952. And you said in the book that based on the correspondence that you had read, once Mary completed her PhD dissertation, she was originally talking to Robinson about publishing it and then ceased to talk to him about publishing it. So there is a gap there that he may have thought, well, this isn't going to get published either way. But Olympus 7 was published in 1933, which is only a year after Mary completed 
completed her master's thesis, he knew she was planning on coming back. So there seems to be less less justification or less like not that it's justified at any point in time, but you know, he could have said, "Oh, well, it's been 11 years since she completed her her dissertation. It's never going to get published." You know, maybe I could get away with it. It seems a lot riskier to publish something that she only completed a year ago. She's planning on coming back. And then she went and she took a, a much longer period of absence between her master's and her PhD. And I wonder if she knew that Olympus 7 had been plagiarized and that she had to decide whether or not she wanted to go back to that situation. That is a, a great question, and we will never know the answer to that. I thought that might I be the answer. I, knew, I, wish I, could <laughs> I do know once she came back and started working on her dissertation, she, in her dissertation, cites Olympus 7 repeatedly. So <laughs> she had the volume right there in front of her. She knew what she was looking at. But to get back to that first volume, you're right, he was taking a big risk. I think you're right about that in, in plagiarizing that. It's also, as far as I can tell, the first thing he ever plagiarized, uh, at least as far as I can tell. And I think there's a, a reason for that. He was under tremendous pressure. 1931, the season he did at Olympus with Ellingson was his second season there. His first season was in 1928. And then he took uh, those three years to actually publish stuff. He wanted to get something out there. But those publications were so poorly received because he did such a bad job. He was a terrible, terrible excavator. He had learned how to excavate in the early 1900s, and he didn't seem to understand that excavation techniques had got better in the next 30 years. <laughs> that seems to have been a surprise to him. And so he published a volume, one of those early volumes was on these terracotta figurines, which Ellingson then wrote about as well. And it was panned, it was mocked, because he had no contextual information. So he's, he has these catalogs of these figurines, and he couldn't say where they came from. He would have a general region, part, a block maybe, but not a specific house, not a specific room. He also said in those early volumes, there was no stratigraphy at Olympus, which is, of course, absurd. And so he has no stratigraphic data. And so these volumes were so bad and so panned that there was talk at the American School of getting his permit pulled. So 1931, he was under huge pressure to do something and do it really well. And her master's thesis on these figurines is so much better. I've actually put the two right next to each other, what he published about figurines and what she did, and it's just head and shoulders better. It's got all the contextual information. Um, it also has some interpretations, some really interesting interpretations about the development, the history of these, about their use in real life, which he had none of. His was just a catalog. And if you look at the reviews then, so this volume, volume seven, was the first one he published from that 1931 season. And suddenly, he gets really good reviews. People really liked her work, but of course they thought it was his. So I think she helped save his career. She helped save his permit. She really helped him out. He was in a, a tough spot, but he needed a win and he saw a really quick and easy way to get it. And so he took it. The thing is, I think that you'd said in the book about how much Robinson was relying on his graduate students to, to supervise the excavations. So... It made me question if he even really learned anything about excavation techniques, or was it his graduate students that instituted the more careful controls of, you know, provenience? Yeah, absolutely not. He learned absolutely nothing. <laughs> the one thing he did learn is that he didn't know anything, and that's why he became dependent on particularly J. Walter Graham. When he Robinson made the decision that maybe houses weren't so bad, that maybe they might get something out of this. He didn't know how to excavate. He didn't know what to do. 
or how to record the information for this whole new type of excavation. And so he just turned it over to J. Walter Graham, and he developed the techniques for recording stratigraphy and all the contextual information, and he taught it to all the other graduate students. And Robinson then went off. The impression I get from reading like the daily logs is he was meeting with important people. He was trying to raise money. He was, you know, talking to Greek officials. Meanwhile, J. Walter Graham was really supervising things. And he's the one we, I think we have to thank for the Olympus volumes. He got the information. Robinson then, of course, wrote it up with the help of the graduate students. But had J. Walter Graham not been there, I don't know what he would have done. He would have been sunk. I've got two questions for you. Anyway, I have two questions for you. One is, why do you think he chose, because he gave credit to some of his other undergraduate students for their their contributions. So why do you think it was, and, I, and we've kind of talked about this, but I just want to hear it out of your mouth. Why do you think it is that he chose to plagiarize her and not all of his students or any of his other students on in those volumes. And what are you hoping to achieve by having this book out there? Are you, are you hoping to get her some credit where her credit is due? Or is it just an interesting story that you just want to tell? Well, to answer that last question first, what I'm hoping to do is, yes, get her the credit she deserves, but also give all the women who will never get credit the credit that they deserve. I get the impression, once this book came out, I actually got fan mail. This is my third book. I never got fan mail for my first book. It's, uh, what is the title? The Urban Dialogue, A Spatial Analysis of the Greco-Roman Colony of Emporia, Spain. How can I not get fan mail for that? It sounds riveting. It, it sounds riveting. I'm sorry, I, have, I haven't read that one yet. <laughs> but I have gotten fan mail for this. And it's people who are, uh, I've gotten letters from sometimes older women who grew up in that generation or the generation immediately afterwards, some who left the field, some who worked at low level positions because they ne could never work their way up. And they just said, you know, this is my story, or this was the stories I heard. Thank you for telling it. And just the fact that I can document it for Ellingson, and I don't think she was alone. I think there are other people who went through similar things whom we'll never know the, their names, we'll never know what happened to them. So I feel like I'm telling stories of people who otherwise would go unrecorded, would be good, uh, completely forgotten. So, so why do you think he chose her to plagiarize and, and not his other students? Yeah, um, in 1933, when Volume 7 came out, I think he was desperate. And so he was just going to do whatever he had to. That's what I think is going on there. And so it could have been anybody. Whoever wrote that next really good thing, I think he would have stolen. It just happened to be her. By 1952, the two of them were really good friends. They were close friends, which is another thing I have a hard time understanding. But I think he thought their friendship their friendship could withstand it. And that's why he sent her the book, uh, like telling her, look, I plagiarized your stuff. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Because he thought he could repair the damage to their friendship. Hmm. I wonder if he ever actually did. Uh, Kirsten, you had a question? Uh, it's sort of a question and comment on the, the topic of why her, I think that you make a really great point, Alan, and that she was very good at what she did. And I think he may have recognized that. But at the same time, they had a very unique relationship from what you described early on in the book. There were a few interactions, which you note, or she notes in her letters, that would not likely be missed by the rest of the crew, as far as comments about how pretty she is. And there was a, a specific one that kind of caught me off guard a bit about, quote, you have a pretty neck. I hope it doesn't swell up when she had gotten a bite on her hand. And 
it's, it just kind of threw me because any comment like that today would immediately be tagged as sexual harassment. No doubt about it. Like, pretty blatantly. And if he's having sort of that sort of back and forth with one, if not two, um, but if, with one of his students, there's a little bit different of a dynamic with that than something that's a little bit more professional, which may be more like with some of the men. So there's, uh, yeah, they may have been friends later on, but part of me wonders what else was going on. You do say in there that you pretty much discount an affair because the wife was not, I, I may have misinterpreted, but it read that like the, the wife, Mrs. Robinson, was not jealous or didn't indicate that she felt jealousy. And it could be just the times. I know like in the 19th century it was very common for people to have affairs and it wasn't really thought of as a big deal so I don't know if that's maybe part of it but I don't know I, I think that that different dynamic and that subservient versus the you know professor the head the person who's in charge uh, she wouldn't have objected and he may have known that if that makes any no so that's an interesting point I agree. I think it's an interesting point. It's something I struggled with trying to, we'll never know, and I have no concrete evidence, which is the main reason I'm hesitant to make a claim they were sleeping together. <laughs> On the other hand, they're just weird things. There are those comments. I agree with that. And then also there's the, it's a very funny story where there's sort of this comedy of errors, but the cook, their cook comes to the conclusion that uh, Robinson and Ellington had just gotten married. And that just struck me so weird of... I get there's this comedy of errors, but he didn't look at some other explanation. That's what he immediately jumps to. So I just think they had a very close relationship. Whether it was sexual or not, I don't know, but uh, everybody yeah. noticed. I had no doubt about that. Alan, do you have a copy of your book in front of you? Yes. Would you be willing to read your dedication? Uh, let's see. This book is dedicated to all of the unsung heroines of the of early archaeology, the unacknowledged women, graduate students who did not continue in the field, and the wives of the archaeologists who toil on excavations but never saw their names on the publications they helped produce. This is the story of one such woman, and it must stand as a proxy for all those whose names and contributions to the field we will never know. Well, Alan, thank you very much for coming on the show and doing this interview with us, and thank you for writing this book. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for being willing to share uh, Mary Ellington's story with the world. I really appreciate that. And I'll also uh, remind everybody that the uh, book oh, yes. is coming out paperback in July. Uh, what time in July? July 1st? Or? That I don't know. Okay, so look we'll for this July. book in July. Go buy it. It's a brilliant book. It's a quick read, and it's a really good read, too. And it is, if you cannot wait, it is currently out in hardback and um, ebook. We hope you have enjoyed the show. Please be sure to subscribe and rate our show wherever you listen. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and probably whatever your favorite podcasting app is. Remember to like and share. If you have questions or comments, you can post them in the comments section for the show at the Women in Archaeology page on the Archaeology Podcasting Network site. Or email them to us at womeninarchaeologypodcast at gmail.com. This show is part of the Archaeology Podcasting Network and is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. You can reach them at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Music for this show was Retro Future by Kevin McLeod, available at Incomptep and royalty-free music. Thanks for listening.
This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.